Uh, we have been looking at that broad lens, that overview of how Exodus tells the gospel story. The gospel is the good, good news of God's story, of him bringing and establishing his kingdom in fullness. And what that means is his presence fully dwells with his people, as it was at creation, as it will be one day forever. We are in the longing and the waiting time. Jesus has come to make that more intimately possible, that we can draw near to God and dwell with him, and that God can be with us, Emmanuel. That requires the dealing of of our sin, of our turning from God and needing to be restored and renewed by his grace and by his mercy. This is the big picture. It's often a journey. It's often challenging. We often doubt and want to go back and do something else. And then we see that all in this story. But as we encounter God and come to know who he is, there's this mixture of both being drawn in as we see Moses drawn into this amazing sight, as we get glimpses of God, we're drawn in. And there's this sense of his holiness and our unworthiness to be in his presence. Potentially even some fear or deep concern. We see it all kind of wrapped up in here. But the name of God is revealed here. It's where it really first comes on the scene in the story. And I, I do want to press into the name of God, really one and the same with his character and his essence, his nature. In Hebrew thought, a name was meant to capture and reflect someone's identity and character. It's often why names were changed or altered slightly later in life as some form of transformation or change happened in one's life, God himself gave new names to people from Abram to Abraham, from Jacob to Israel. We think of even a more recent example of Saul turned to the apostle Paul. As this transformation happens, sometimes names are given that represent that change. Well, God is unchanging. God himself carries many names, many descriptions. He really can't be pinned down uh, or defined by a term, but the name that rises above them all shows up here in the passage and in Hebrew thought uh, throughout the millennia. This name, these four letters in the Hebrew language rise to the top and capture the full essence of God. They are really uh, simple and yet extremely complex. It seems clear, but it has confused many even scholars and theologians. It's so concise, and yet it can be confounding. Verse 15 of chapter 3, This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. God declares who he is and has always been and always will be. Perhaps it would be simply best to call him forever. That word forever, I think, is a good picture. As God says, this is my name forever, because it's an adverb or a noun or potentially even an adjective, depending on how you use it. He is the forever God, the eternal one, the God of the living from generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting. God reveals this character and his nature in this full description to Moses. His name is both short and long, I guess we could say. It's short as in those four Hebrew letters, but it is long in description and fullness. 
And we see some of that captured here in the passage from God's own lips. It made me think of the King of England. Today, King Charles III, we could call him the King, the King of England, but his full title is expansive. The titles that have been uh, upon him or given to him over the ages as time has gone. Let me read some of them. His Royal Highness, Royal Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Grand Master and First and Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Extraordinary Commander of the Order of Military Merit, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom. You, you can almost hear him being announced as he comes into the room to uh, declare maybe a new vision or mission or to lead, uh, and on and on. I'm leaving out titles, but it feels like that is that is what is happening here in this regal kind of way. God's saying simply, I am, and then fleshing that out more fully with some of the descriptions that come. These four Hebrew letters reign supreme. Y-H-W-H, if we were to transliterate them into our English letters, it's known as the Tetragrammaton. That sounds like a transformer or a villain in Marvel or something. The Tetragrammaton. It simply means four letters, the four-lettered title of God. There, there's lots of different descriptions of these four letters so that even so, some of the most uh, orthodox Jews would not say this name or these letters or, or even write them. They would leave a blank space when they would be transcribing the scriptures with these four letters and maybe come back later and fill in all of those blank spaces with Y-H-W-H, with a brand new quill, maybe having been ceremonially washed and cleansed and then breaking that quill at the end. All of that was to give reverence and honor to these four letters that rise to the top. And what's so amazing is they simply mean, I am. That is what God says to Moses. Tell them, I am sent you. The I am captures who he has always been. It's a forever term. It's eternal. He is the God of now, and he's the God of later. He is forever, from everlasting to everlasting. Other scripture authors call him the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the Greek letters for the beginning and the end of the Alpha. From, be, from beginning to end, forever and ever, from, there's no be, there is no, nothing that can contain God. He simply is. Now, in your English translations, most of the Bibles that you would hold or look, or, or, or if you have the device, of a device and you're looking, uh, to, know, to know when these four letters show up, you're going to see the capital letters L-O-R-D, Lord. And they're all going to be capitalized in Scripture, in your English translations, to represent Y-H-W-H. Now, you, you know that there's, well, maybe not, you know, there's no vowels in the Hebrew language. So to be spoken had to, had to be given some form of, uh, of breathing to fill in those consonants, so to speak. So the spoken word of Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, is what we already sang about, is Yahweh, Yahweh. So every time you see capital L-O-R-D in your English translations, it is these four letters, Yahweh. And it feels like Lord isn't enough to represent, but we have nothing, maybe nothing better uh, to 
elevate this name of I am. The English word that we see God throughout our scripture is a different Hebrew word, Elohah. In the plural, it's Elohim, gods. There are other descriptors of divine beings in scripture. Even in this own passage, it seems uncertain who exactly Moses is engaging or hearing speak. Did you notice that at all, the tension that exists here? It, it was rather subtle, but I think upon rereading it, you start to notice. Uh, and if we could read Hebrew, it would jump out a little more clearly with the different words that are used. Look at verse 2 and verse 4 together. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames. The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in the flames from within the bush. Verse 4, when the Lord, Yahweh, saw that Moses had gone over to look, God, Eloah, called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. So which is it? The angel of Yahweh, Yahweh himself, or God, Eloah? And the author seems to just allow that to be. Now, if, if you are a Christian or have been, and the Christians have had to hold this tension of a Trinitarian God, God the Father, Yahweh, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, three persons, we might say, in one. God is a paradox. Paradox might simply be a placeholder for truth, as I've said many times. It confounds us. That's why we use the term. It seems impossible to, be, to both be true. One day, I think we will see, as Paul says, face to face, we will see clearly, not dimly, we will see clearly. And paradox will not be a term we use anymore because it simply will be something that we grasp and know. And, and perhaps, more than anything, we must come to experience this God more than simply name him or define him or give him titles. Moses is experiencing God in this encounter, and there's uncertainty. Even Moses' questions, who are you? Maybe revealing something in Moses' understanding of believing, and they lived in a very polytheistic society that believed in many gods who had authority and power over different things. The debate was whether, whether or not how many different gods existed and how to appease them or be on their good side. That was the debate, not whether or not they existed. That was the society that they lived in. To be an atheist, to not believe in any gods, would have been heretical in that day. So perhaps Moses is asking, who are you? Who, who should I say is sending me is actually revealing that Moses himself is still uncertain which divine being he is encountering here. God both makes it clear and I think leaves him needing to walk by faith in his answer. Look at verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. What should I tell them? What is his name? If they ask, if they ask what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, that's what you are to say to them. I am has sent you. It seems like Moses is scuffling a little bit, hard to blame him, imagining that encounter, that strange encounter, and somehow him hearing a voice from this burning bush that is not consumed. 
It's essentially that Moses, or that God is saying in response to Moses, Moses, it's not about you. It's not about who you are. It's about me. It's about who I am. And who is God? A God who chooses the last and least likely to do remarkable things. It's what we've been seeing throughout the story. This is how big and good our God is. Gracious, loving, merciful. So when Moses asks this question of, of who are you, Maybe he is either doubting or wrestling with trying to come to fully understand. This is likely a new experience for Moses. Maybe he was just stalling, hard, hard to know. At the end of the whole encounter that we'll get to as we move on in these couple weeks to see the fullness of this passage, at the end, Moses will essentially say, no, not me, send another. It's too much for me, it's too big for me. So maybe Moses is still just stalling and trying to get his wits about him in these questions, but hard to blame him. So God says, I am who I am. Three words, actually two Hebrew words, but one of them's repeated. Echah, eser, echah, which is simply the infinitive in the imperfect to be, and then to be and who, to be, who, to be. So I am who I am is an okay translation, but in the imperfect tense, it could also be translated, I will be who I will be. It's both. It can be both. And I think it's great to hold both. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And those simple Hebrew words, eyah, eser, eyah. And then he says, Yahweh, just a different form of I am it captures his essence and his nature. He is, he is now, he will be always. He is the forever God. And he explains this further by saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, sorry, the God of your father, indicating some form of faith of his father, but, and the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. Notice he says, I am the God of these, not I was the God of your father. Jesus himself will point to this declaration as proof of the resurrection and of eternal life. Somewhat significant. We'll get there in just a moment. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will be with you forever. He is the past, present, and future God. So this shorthand name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is meant to represent this unfathomable, indescribable fullness of God's being, his nature, his character, his, his essence, which is probably why a word that could be used in so many other contexts throughout Scripture, the Hebrews paused and said, we will revere this name as capturing God's fullness, and we will not even dare utter it or write it without being of right heart. Later in the story, when we get to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments are given to Moses, right at the top of that list is a call that we often translate, do not use the Lord's name in vain or misuse it. I think it's been totally misunderstood. I'm looking forward to getting there. I think more rightly it means do not misbear God's name. We are meant to bear God's name as image bearers, to represent him. 
and we must not misrepresent him. I believe that's the call at the top of the list. So his name gets placed upon us and in us as we can represent him. So this is shorthand. We see, we see throughout even this passage, throughout the story, God's name being fleshed out more fully. In, I want to turn to Exodus 34. This is later in the fulfillment of the promise when Moses has delivered God's people. Well, God has delivered them through Moses. They're back on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, maybe one and the same. They're back in this place. Moses is meeting with God, and God declares again and expands upon his name. Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. If you're there, this is Exodus 34, verse 5 and following. He stood with him. He met with him. Again, very intimate, just as in the fire, but maybe even more so. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Consider that like the royal announcement of the king, King Charles, that I read earlier. But these titles that were bequeathed almost in honor, instead the way God declares his name is so strikingly different. It's his character. It's his essence. And it's his mercy, his love, his nature forever, his forgiveness, his patience. I am, I am, Yahweh, Yahweh. So while we recognize the four letters maybe rising to the top, they embody and are meant to capture all of this, the simply I am. So much more can be said and has on the name of God, the great I am. There's whole books written simply on this passage and this declaration. I'm tempted. But I want to turn to two places and try to bring it together in the fullness of the story. One, let's turn to where Jesus points to what he would say is the primary meaning of this passage for us today. Something that was right there on the page that so many missed. It's recorded in three out of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was an answer to this Jewish religious sect of the, of the Sadducees who were coming to accuse Jesus. The Sadducees, well, one way to remember it is they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in an afterlife, in an eternal life. Different than the Pharisees, but, but often they, the Sadducees made up a lot of the religious leadership of the day. They had a lot of power and influence. They came to Jesus to try to trap him as they were concerned about all those that were going and following him and looking to him to lead instead of them. So they were becoming jealous as some of the Pharisees were also. They, they made up this hypothetical story about the afterlife, which is so ironic because they don't believe in it. It's just kind of insidious. And they bring up this story about a woman who is married to a man who dies before they can have children. Part of the ancient Jewish tradition 
was if that were to happen, uh, if there was a brother, the brother was to marry this woman in order that she could reproduce, and those kids would have the father's name. It was an ancient practice called the Leveret practice. It may not even even been in practice at all in this day that they were bringing it before Jesus. So again, this hypothetical story to try to trap or get Jesus to trip up in his answer. And they, kept, they went on with this story. You, some of you may remember. They said, imagine this woman and she, her husband dies, so the brother steps in and, and he marries her, but she, he, they can't produce offspring either. And then that, that, that new husband, that brother dies. And so the third steps in all the way down to the seventh. Apparently, there were seven brothers, and they all married, and there was no offspring, and they died, and then the woman died. And when she gets to heaven, Jesus, whose wife will she be? You can almost just hear how pleased they are with themselves for coming up with this great story, though they don't believe in even an afterlife, as if this would even have been possible. Here is Jesus' answer in Luke chapter 20. Again, it's recorded Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in Luke 20, verse 34, Jesus replies to them, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they will be like the angels. They're God's children, since they are children of the resurrection." He directly flies in the face of their belief as if there was no resurrection and declares it. And here's the clincher. Here's why we're going to it. He says, in the account of the bush. So he goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, right where we're looking. He says, in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. Now, this would have been an astonishing statement to them. The Sadducees had felt like they had a pretty good case. And if, it's true. If you read through all of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis through, through Malachi, there is very little about heaven or hell or an afterlife. It just wasn't a part of the, of the Jewish way of thinking. You died and went to Sheol, which was equivalent with the grave. You died and went into the grave. There was just very little. And the Sadducees had reason to say there is no afterlife. And Jesus here is declaring, even Moses showed us that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This is a radical statement taking a scripture that had never, apparently never been seen that way or interpreted that way and saying, here's its true meaning. Now, now certainly there's, there's more, and Jesus could have taught much more about, about this passage. But in this, in, in this case, he's using it in a way to say, always has God revealed himself as the forever God, the God of the living That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they died on earth, have risen and are with God. He is their God. It's plain. It's right on the page, he said. Not only was it a radical declaration of of almost reinterpretation, a reimagining of a passage, it indicated his authority to do so. To take this ancient story and say, here's what it means. And in its fullness, as Jesus would rise from the dead himself, conquering death and proving to all 
that all would, that would draw near to God are unto him. There's a, there's a power in this, in this statement that perhaps should not be missed. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. We must at least hold the possibility that God's plan is the redemption of all people, however he might possibly do that. By Jesus' own declaration here, it leaves us space to wrestle with that, not to ignore the fullness of the passages that talk about separation from God after death. And yet here we have Jesus himself reinterpreting a passage that he says proves the resurrection and eternal life. I think some, some, maybe even of us, but certainly in the broader community would look at this story of Exodus as having no bearing and no application, a 3,000-year-old story. What could it possibly matter? For those of us that are following Jesus or have followed Jesus or drawing near to Jesus, it's right whenever possible to go to his words and see how he interprets this ancient story. And I don't know if there's something more powerful in it as what he says about eternal life and who God is, what it means to be the I am is that he is the forever God, not just of the living, but of those who have died and what that might mean for us who believe. Second thing I want to point us to as we see this passage come together both in history with Jesus and in our faith today, this declaration of who God is, the I am, is what Jesus takes for himself. Maybe you know this passage in, in John chapter 8. In, in this day when Jesus was moving around Judea, this is pre, if you, this is, I know it's hard to grasp, this is pre-Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. When he is moving around Judea, there's all there is is rumors being spread about what's happening, about who he is, about these miraculous events, apparently, about people being healed or thousands being fed. And if you know how rumors spread, not that it is much different today with our social media, but they, the story seems to change a little bit as it's told from one to another and to another. Some have not yet seen any miraculous signs from Jesus. They've only heard. And so many are trying to get a grasp of who exactly he is and how, how trustworthy are these accounts. There's, it seems that there's too many of them from too many places to have nothing associated uh, with the divine or with uh, supernatural power. And yet they're trying to grasp it. And some are now claiming that Jesus was demon-possessed. Again, a very polytheistic society, believing in, in powers or principalities, angels and demons. That, that was the norm. But exactly their, their nature or their ability to influence or, or, you know, or, or, or magic or sorcery, whether that could be tapped into or not, that was what was up to debate, not whether there were supernatural powers. So some were accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. The, on, the only way he could be doing these signs is, is through demonic power, because he's not one of us, would be what the, the Jewish leaders were, were saying. So here's Jesus' response to another accusation, John 8, 49, that he is demon-possessed. 
And he says, very frankly, I am not possessed by a demon. It's almost like he's laughing there. Just, come on. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. There is one who seeks it. He's the judge. He will judge. I, I tell you the truth. If anyone will keep my word, he will never see death. Again, this subtle but powerful statement. He will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, oh, now we know you're demon-possessed. Ha-ha, we got you. Abraham died, and so did all the prophets, yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? They've got him. They feel like they've got him trapped. Jesus doesn't answer that question right there. Let me skip down to verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The author of Hebrews will talk about Abraham looking forward to seeing the coming day of God's kingdom, essentially. He had this hope in something so much more than what he was experiencing in life. We, resound, we, we resonate with that faith today, even today. We still long for so much more. Jesus says, yes, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing a future day. But he says, this is where, this is where the, Jews, the blasphemy starts to come. Abraham rejoiced at seeing my day. Who do you think you are? You're not 50 years old yet, the Jews said. Have you seen Abraham? Now, they're laughing. Now, listen to this. Here's why we're coming to this passage. Tying it back to Exodus 3, verse 58 of John 8. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Ego me in Greek. He's probably speaking Aramaic. It's been translated. But nonetheless, it's very clear. It does not make grammatical sense. Not in our English, not in his Aramaic. Before Abraham was born, I am. Look at what happens next. Verse 59. At this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Unlikely that there were large enough stones to kill a person right there where he was talking. So they go, and they're trying, like, that's it. Hold him down, keep him. That's it. Blasphemy of the highest order. Not only is he claiming to reinterpret the Hebrew scriptures, he is claiming to be Yahweh. Before Abraham was born, I am. They didn't miss it. Jesus knew what he was saying, and they knew what he was saying. And they were either right to be incensed, because this man was not the embodiment of Yahweh himself, and therefore misrepresenting the name, blaspheming the name, slandering it, breaking the top of the list of the Ten Commandments, a capital offense. So they were either right to be incensed and potentially just to execute capital judgment right there. Or those who were coming to believe in Jesus were right to bow before him, to worship him as God, to take off their sandals before him as Moses did before the bush. There was really no middle ground being left. If you were a Jew in that day, it was vitally important that you, you took a side about who this Jesus of Nazareth was claiming to be. Not, not who others were saying he was to be, what, what was to be, but who he was claiming to be. And while we are not 
threatened under the same kind of persecution to assent that Jesus is who he claimed he was, the great I am, the second person of the Trinity, God himself. In that day, to say that would have potentially cost your own life. You were, you were double persecuted by claiming that this other Lord, other than Caesar in the Roman world, or this is, uh, this is truly Yahweh himself in the flesh. Either way, from Jews or, or Romans, you are on, on thin ice to declare that. Today, I'm not under the same persecution. And yet, the same decision for us is always there as we hear Jesus' words and tie them to the ancient story. Who do you say I am? It is for each of us to respond to. And Jesus doesn't leave very much room here. He either is who he claims to be, or he is something else. And historically, throughout the ages, the other examples possibly are he is either a liar and the essence of evil, intentionally trying to betray and claim to be God, or he is demon-possessed, or we might use more terms, he's out of his mind. He's not mentally well. He thinks he is God, but he's not. And there wasn't left much room other than those options. This is where we seek to walk by faith in the words of Jesus, the way that he interprets the ancient story, the way that he declares who our God is and always will be and how he has come. He has seen and he has come. The first great deliverance, God comes down and sends Moses and works through him. The second great deliverance, God himself comes down. And through the cross and through the grave, delivers his people. The hope of those who follow him take his promises that once again, he will come. He will come and renew and restore all things, bringing his kingdom to this world in fullness. It's what we long for. Now that we have heard both God's words of his declaration to Moses and Jesus' words of what this means, that he says, before Abraham was, I am. Would we draw near to him as Moses did? Would we take off our proverbial sandals? I, I don't know what the modern equivalent of that is. Maybe That's a fantastic question for your life groups as you come together. What does it mean to draw near to God, to take off our sandals as we come to him in honor and in reverence? As we looked at last week, there was a, a hesitancy to draw near to God. You see Moses, fearful, not wanting to look, hiding his face, then told to take off his sandals. We can now come to God in freedom and confidence because of what Christ has done. Listen to the author of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. This is how we respond today. Let us, with, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time 
of need. We have a God who has seen and heard and come, a forever God. And because of what he has done through the cross, we can draw near with confidence. We, are, we, we need not take off our sandals and keep a distance. Yet, our heart may compel us in some way to come with that same kind of reverence for this holy God. What does that mean? What in our heart, what impurities in our heart must burn away as we draw near to, to that fire? God, make me pure again. By the blood of Jesus I come. Not by my own merit, not by my own actions, though there may be things that we would do to, to work for greater holiness, greater intimacy, greater representation of who Jesus is and what he has done. But none of that must precede coming under his grace and his mercy as we partake today again of the reminders of what he has done through the bread and through the cup. Let us respond to him today by drawing near, whatever that looks like. And for each of us, that's probably going to look a little bit different. But draw near. And I'll remind us again of the simple prayer that we overlooked today, but we focused in on last week, that Moses said to God upon his first word, here I am, God. Here I am. And he remained. He drew near and he remained. And maybe that's the only prayer you feel like you can pray today. Here I am, God. God will be pleased and honored if you bring that to him and remain. Draw near, draw near, and walk with him this coming week.